Historically Thinking Commonplace book for the week of January 13th, 2019, a week featuring stories of law and sometimes the triumph of justice or the reverse of both. January 13th, 1898, French author Emile Zola published J'accuse, a letter accusing the French government of a cover-up in the Alfred Dreyfus case. Dreyfus had been convicted of treason for selling military secrets to the Germans and had been sent to Devil's Island off the coast of French Guiana in South America. Zola was himself a clerk who had begun to write reviews for our newspapers and gone on to become a best-selling novelist, a cultural celebrity in France. The immediate reaction to his attack was not favorable to Dreyfus's case. Indeed, Zola fled France after being tried and convicted for criminal libel. For almost a year, until the fall of the French government that had tried him, Zola was living, lived in a London exile. A new government, a new government gave Dreyfus a pardon after a second trial, in which he was once more convicted, and Dreyfus accepted it, even though it still branded him as a pardoned traitor. It was not until 1906 that Alfred Dreyfus was finally exonerated. On January 16, 1990, prohibition began in the United States. The 18th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution prohibiting the manufacture, sale, or transportations of intoxicating liquors became law, finally having been approved by a sufficient majority of states. January 20th, 1265, Simon de Montfort's Parliament met. Rebelling against Henry III, Simon de Montfort brought together an assembly not only of nobles, but also of burgesses, of commoners, bourgeoisie. Summoned were 23 lay magnates, 120 bishops, two knights from each English county, and two citizens from each town, as well as four men from each of the Cinque ports, the five ports along the Channel Coast in the counties of Kent and Sussex, which were important enough to medieval England to be given certain special privileges. The Parliament began on the 20th, having been summoned in December, and it should be emphasized that it was a bid to reinforce Simon's power in his rebellion, not to introduce representative democracy to medieval England. As a tactic, it failed. De Montfort was killed later that year, his rebellion suppressed. But as, so, as is so often the case, an idea lived on after the failure of the movement that initiated it. And, perhaps somewhat incorrectly, the English Parliament to this day sees Simon de Montfort's Parliament as its origin. On January 20th, 1649, the conclusion of the English Civil War, King Charles brought before the High Court of Justice at Westminster Hall on charges of treason. The Civil War had been fought over whether the King's power was absolute or whether it was limited by Parliament's powers. In the trial that followed, Charles was found guilty, condemned as a tyrant, traitor, murderer, public enemy, and beheaded in front of Whitehall Palace in London. And on January 20th, 1942, the Vansay Conference convened by Reinhard Heydrich, Heydrich with 15 other Nazi bureaucrats to coordinate the Enlösung, the final solution in which the Nazis would exterminate the entire Jewish population of Europe, some 11 million persons. Birthdays. 
January 15th, Martin Luther King, born in 1929, Atlanta, Georgia, African civil rights leader who stressed nonviolent methods as a means of achieving equality, received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964, assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee, April 4th, 1968. It's no disrespect to Dr. King to point out that there are many other leaders in the civil rights struggle that now also deserve recognition. And at January 18th, the birthday of American orator and politician Daniel Webster in Salisbury, New Hampshire in 1782. Liberty and union, now and forever, one and inseparable, was his great cry in his, the debate with Robert Hayne of South Carolina. But Webster was notable also for his service as Secretary of State and for his many arguments before the Supreme Court. Also born this week, on January 19, 1724, Dai Zhen, perhaps the foremost Confucian scholar of the Qing dynasty. He demonstrated that many of the so-called Neo-Confucians that preceded him had made mistakes based upon their incorrect readings of the original text, making him a leader in textual criticism akin to the Italian Renaissance scholar Lorenzo Valla. Here's what historian Kenneth R. Stunkel has to say about Dai Zhen's contribution. He sought a close relationship with ancient texts by means of critical analysis and understood the principle of verification. Within the narrow confines of textual analysis, he demonstrated a connection between evidence in a text and historical truth. He anticipated science, modern science by arguing that no one's private opinion could be used as a principle. No individual has his own facts which are a reality all men face equally. The implications for doing history are clear. Subjective feelings and intuitions do not lead to truth. Rather, they give people in power justification for imposing their narrow views on the helpless and the weak. In the meantime, we learn nothing of value about the world, past or present. Dai Zhen, born January 19th. 1724. And that's Historically Thinking's Commonplace book for this week. Please leave a review of this podcast on iTunes so that more listeners can discover us. I'm Al Zambone, right in the corner where you are. Mm-hmm.